Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. So we have a special segment today. We are talking with Brandon Weston. Brandon is a spiritual healer, medium, and writer living in the Arkansas Ozarks. He is the author of Ozark Folk Magic, Plants, Prayers, and Healing, and the Ozark Mountain Spellbook. He is the owner of Ozark Healing Traditions, a collective of articles, lectures, and workshops focusing on traditions of medicine, magic, and folklore from the Ozark Mountain region. So, hi, Brandon. How are you today? Doing good. How are you? Doing pretty good. We were just saying it's weirdly cold for this, for the South right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I- uh, I, I always like to tell people, you know, there's a saying in Arkansas, where I am at least, that if you don't like the weather, just wait a day. <laughs> oh, God. If that's not just the truth. Like, yeah. Or a few hours even sometimes. <laughs> so I'm really excited to have you on today. One, because I personally just really enjoy uh, learning about different folk magic. I, I think folk magic is just extremely powerful and um often overlooked I feel like it's gotten a little bit of a resurgence recently but like go back like five years ago and it was just not something uh you know people were talking about right so uh you focus on Ozark magic and can you tell us a little bit about um how Ozark magic kind of compares to other folk magics and maybe your um you know your history with it Sure. Um, So a little bit of history of the Ozarks. Um, The Ozark Ozark region as a sort of culture really only goes back to about 1800. Um, That was when the Ozark Mountains opened up after the forced removal of the Osage to Oklahoma uh, with the Indian Removal Act. Um, And so that land, the U.S. government opened up this land for settlement. And the people that came here were from Appalachia for the most part. So they came as small families and, you know, extended families. They didn't really come as towns or big communities. So it really was family traditions coming and then mixing and mingling with family traditions. But even from the beginning, the folk magic and folk healing traditions were really an amalgam of a lot of different things. So I always tell people, you know, if you are familiar with you know, Northern European folk traditions. Um, I mean, even some Southern European folk traditions, as well as some other New World traditions. You will be very familiar with the Ozarks already. Um, it's really a mixture of a lot of different traditions. Um, I usually get the question, you know, what's the closest thing in the in the U.S. or, you know, what's the closest thing to Ozark folk traditions? And really our closest traditions are Appalachian folk traditions. We're still sort of sibling cultures. 
Uh, we're still a part of the greater Appalachian cultural region. And so those traditions are our sibling traditions, but then beyond that, um, really the closest thing to Ozark folk magic is um, Pennsylvania German folk traditions, actually. Um, Braukerei, there's also a tradition called powwowing um, from Pennsylvania German country and then from rural Germany. And the reason for that is that German communities came into the Appalachian Mountains and then moved to the Ozarks. And so there's a heavy German influence here. There's also a heavy Scots-Irish and sort of pan-British Isles mashed together sort of influence. Um, but there are a lot of different cultural traditions that are represented in the Ozarks. And I, I always tell my students, you know, you can find the fingerprints of all of these different cultures in the Ozarks, but you have to remember that this is a uniquely Ozark tradition. So while we can look at those fingerprints, we couldn't say that Ozark folk magic is um, German folk magic. We can't say that it is British folk magic. It is Ozark folk magic. It's its own thing because it does bring in all of these different influences. Influence is not just from Europe, too. There's also a heavy amount of indigenous influences from Appalachia, as well as uh, West African and Central African traditions uh, by way of black communities and slaves, that sort of interaction that ha would have happened in Appalachia and also on the East Coast. So a lot of um, what people know as hoodoo and Southern conjure has made its way into Ozark folk traditions as well. So it's, uh, it's a big mishmash of a lot of different things that really evolved and changed and grew in isolated families and isolated communities in a heavily mountainous area. And um, because of that isolation, it really became its own thing. There's always been this tradition in the Ozarks of sharing what you know with the community. And so one family may practice a certain way, another family may practice a certain way, but eventually they get together and they share things and they mix and they mingle practices. Um, so yeah, it's closest to you know the other new world uh, folk magic traditions, especially those in Appalachia and the Appalachian Corridor, that sort of, you know, that goes all the way up to New York, um, almost all the way up to Canada. So there are a lot of different cultural regions that are really represented there. I think that's really interesting, especially because when I was looking through your book, uh, I did get the kind of undercurrent of uh, like Appalachian. And I was thinking, oh, this feels similar to Appalachian folk magic, or at least what I've seen of Appalachian folk magic. Um, but it also does have its own distinct um, kind of energy as well. And something that I noticed, uh, you know, in your book that I have also noticed when it comes to Appalachian folk magic, or just, you know, I mean, really just folk magic in general, um, is that there really seems to be a really big focus on healing, which like I can only imagine is really important to a group that maybe is a little bit more removed or a little bit more isolated. So kind of, is that why you think um, healing became such a focal point of these magics? Definitely. Uh, I mean, all of the all of these practices and traditions originated in, with a group of people that 
you know, didn't know if they were going to make it through the winter, you know, didn't know if they were going to make it through the day in a lot of cases. And so you see this with folk magic and, and a lot of different cultural traditions. Folk magic is really the magic of necessity. It's the magic of the people, of the folk. And so in the Ozarks, you know, the folk magic, folk healing tradition has changed a lot, but it's changed because we don't really have a need for a lot of the practices anymore because we aren't living the same lives that our ancestors did. So early on in, in the folk magic traditions here in the Ozarks, you have a lot of um, charms and procedures for curing warts, for instance, or for stopping a bleeding wound or for healing burns uh, or for he healing animals. There are a lot of livestock uh, rituals and processes in the old Ozarks. And you don't really see a lot of this stuff left anymore because, you know, these are things that we don't necessarily have need for. Um, you know, we find them in the folk record. So people collect um, these remedies and things like that to preserve. But, you know, I did a tour of, of the Ozarks sort of collecting modern practices and um, a lot of people didn't know about wart charms anymore because, you know, people don't really get warts, <laughs> you know, unless you are working on a farm or working, in, you know, that sort of um, that sort of working with animals and things like that. Um, warts, you know, and most people, if you have a wart, you go to the store and you buy, you know, a wart remover in a couple days, it goes away. Um, uh, same thing with blood stopping charms, you know, um, people just aren't working in the same conditions. Most people have access to a primary healthcare provider. So a lot of these old, old remedies are sort of, um, dying out, but most of the time, you know, the way I like to look at it is they're, they're not necessarily dying, they're evolving. So they're evolving with the people, which is really a hallmark of folk magic is that it evolves with the people. And so while we don't see wart charms and blood stopping and things like that much anymore, what you do see are, you know, <laughs> healers who work with anxiety, with depression, healers that are working with the, the sort of modern problems that we have, you know, people that are expanding out into working with healing relationships and working within, you know, these other sort of areas. And not to say that, you know, in the old days, people didn't really have uh, you know, problems with relationship and love and depression and things like that, but they were, they were second to survival. <laughs> so if you, uh, you know, if you were able to just survive and meet your basic needs, you were doing great. Depression and anxiety was not something that was really thought about, you know, uh, for most of our ancestors, especially those working in very, um, harsh conditions. So the the practices that we see really have evolved. And that is, like I said, that that foundation of folk magic. Folk magic evolves with the community. It has to. And if it doesn't, it, it dies out um, because the community evolves past the need for these things. And so as a folk practitioner, as a folk healer myself, I still work within a lot of different he spiritual healing practices and magical practices, but I'm definitely working in a different way than my ancestors would have worked. And I, I always tell people that's okay. You know, uh, we have to work in a different way today. We, we have to address the needs of our community. We can't, we can't, you know, 
just stick in this sort of museum exhibit version of folk magic traditions. Um, because if we do that, we're just, you know, um, we're just role playing. We're just, you know, doing an anachronistic sort of drama. Um, we have to evolve with the needs of the community. And that's really the advantage of folk magic traditions is it has the ability to do that. Yes. Okay. So the, I, oh gosh, I absolutely love something you just said there. And that was something I was going to ask about was when it comes to these traditional paths and practices, um, there is such an alluring desire, I think, for some people to hyper fixate on the old traditions and the old ways. And we have to do what, you know, they were doing. And, um, like you said is if you I mean I'm like you know editorializing but kind of what you said it's like if you stick to it so stringently and you refuse to um, update the practices to what our modern world actually is and the needs to our modern world it does feel like role-playing and that is something I uh have always been super I guess sensitive to um when it comes to uh practices because of course the old ways are um there for a reason and all that but so often um I have said to people like certain things make me feel like I'm just performing a skit mm. it doesn't feel authentic because our world is just so different and that is something I think it can be really beneficial to people is learning how to take these really old wonderful traditions but just update them so they make a little bit more practical sense in our modern world. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, and that's kind of the area that I'm working in right now as a modern person, as a millennial, <laughs> uh, is, you know, how do I how do I stay true to the traditions? How do I, you know, have one foot in one world, one foot in, you know, the modern world. Um, and for me, you know, the, the teachers and the people that I've worked with are all modern practitioners. A lot of them are connected to a lot of the, the, the more traditional beliefs there, you know, they work in, um, for instance, you know, heavily Christian practices and working with the Bible and things like that, but they're still evolving with the community. Um, and so the people that I've worked with, they have all been really, really influential on me. And um, one of my teachers, uh, you know, I had this issue of, well, how do I stick with the old ways? And her view of the old ways is that the old ways is always present. It's present in the the foundation of the work. You know, it's present in the why you know, why do we practice? Why do we have this calling to heal? Why do we have this gift? Why do we have this ability? Why do we want to do this in the community? And if we are able to focus in within ourselves on that, that why, why we're doing that, we immediately connect back to our ancestors who are asking themselves the very same question, why am I doing this? Why do I have this gift? Why do I sometimes, you know, suffer because of this gift in the community? Why do I keep doing these things despite, you know, the community not appreciating it or not paying me or whatever it might be? And if we're able to 
connect to that deep question of why, we immediately connect back to this ancient long lineage of practitioners and we're able to support ourselves in a sort of modern practice because the why stays the same. You know, why we do this, this sort of primal deep calling or gift or whatever you want to call it, it, it remains the same, even though the surface level practices may change to address the community. And so I always tell people, you know, if you get into this position where you are questioning your practice and questioning if you should look more traditional or if you should act more traditional, ask yourself, you know, why? Why am I doing this? And if you're doing it to help the community, if you're doing it to heal people, if you're doing it to work and to help people, then that process is going to evolve. That process has to address the, the needs of the current community. And so that, for me, you know, whenever I get into this sort of weird place of questioning what I'm doing and all that, that really helps me get focused because it really it helps me focus on the purpose of this. We're not just performing a skit. We, we in a lot of cases, are helping people. We're actively getting involved in the lives of our community. We're helping to, uh, you know, free the oppressed and we're helping to, you know, heal people that can't get healing and things like that. And so, yeah, when you're, when in doubt, ask yourself why, why you're doing it. And that why almost always connects back to the community, connects back to this process that has been going on since, you know, <laughs> humans first <laughs> jumped down out of the trees <laughs> and started picking plants and, and uh, you know, discovering these medical treatments and things like that. And so the why is always the thing that I go back to. It's that foundation. It's that heart. And in, in Ozark practice, that heart is always connected to the community. So it was something I wasn't going to ask because I just didn't know how to like word it. Um, but it feels like you kind of touched on it here is something I noticed in your book is there seems to be a really big, um, a really big focus on integrity in terms of like, this is how you treat other people in the community. This is, you know, we don't, um, I, I don't have it in front of me, but like, we treat people, especially other uh, people doing magic in our community with um, with a lot of respect. Uh, is that something um, you would agree with? Definitely. Um, from an Ozark perspective, um, traditionally, and I mean, this even pops up today, um, which is one of the things that I think in modern times we're kind of losing sight of, but traditionally, um, people that were gifted had you know, a whole array of special, special, specializations that they did. Um, so for instance, in the old Ozarks, you know, there were community members who could, uh, you know, heal warts or, you know, stop blood, um, a bleeding wound, things like that. But in a lot of cases, there weren't people that did everything. Um, and that's a sort of a practicality even, you know, you can't do everything, <laughs> even though today we really want to be people that knows, has an answer for everything that, that isn't always the case. And so in the old days, 
healers and practitioners really had to work with each other. They had to work within their own boundaries. They had to work with other people's boundaries. And so, you know, if a person came to uh, somebody with a gift and that person didn't know how to heal them, um, they may send them to another healer in the community. And so I think that's one of the things that we've kind of lost sight of today. Everybody thinks or expects of themselves that they should know everything, um, especially, you know, in the traditional witchcraft community, the folk magic community. There's this real sort of pressure that we put on ourselves that we have to be able to answer everybody's questions. We have to be able to have a remedy for everything. And that is just not the way it has worked in traditional communities. And it's not the way that it works in traditional communities today. Communities are that just that, communities. Healers and magical practitioners are not separate from the communities. They're active members of the community. And so as community members, we have to rely on each other, and we have to be able to rely on the gifts and the practices of other people as well. If you are the only person in your community that is a healer or a magical practitioner, and you're trying to address everybody's needs, that is a very bad position to be in. You're going to you're going to burn out pretty quick and i've seen that happen before uh, especially today where there are so few practitioners around um, but we have to have this sort of community spirit we have to understand that our practice sometimes you know sometimes we need to send people to a doctor <laughs> that's the big thing that i face these days with folk magic is people you know being very um being very irresponsible with their their magic and their remedies. Um, in my own practice, if somebody comes to me with a medical issue, I send them to a doctor because that doctor is a part of my community. Um, and so then I will always tell the person after you talk to them, if you want to also do some stuff with me, you know, we can do ritual work, stuff like that. That's always an option. But um, my view of of community is is just that is is we all are uniquely suited to different sort of traditions and practices and jobs and professions and we need to work with each other um, so i am always willing to send people to other practitioners that i know um, because they may know something that i don't they may be looking at the situation in a different way or may be able to help out in a certain way and so yeah in the old days there really were more specialists and there were less generalists and that's sort of generally speaking, um, there were people in the community that had a lot of different um, remedies and things like that. But um, generally speaking, people were much, much more connected to each other. They were much more willing to send people to other practitioners. That said, however, there are a lot of stories and cases about rivalries between practitioners and things like that, especially, you know, when we start talking about money, uh, where money is involved, people people really get sort of um, strange sometimes. So that definitely happened. And, you know, in a lot of cases, unfortunately, um, it was healers who were the first to sort of point the finger of witchcraft at another healer. Um, and get them ostracized from the community and things like that. So that definitely happened um, and still happens today. But um, again, going back to folk magic is a community process. It's a community endeavor. It has to stay within the community and we have to work with each other. 
we as practitioners we kind of get isolated sometimes um but we have to reconnect and we have to connect to other practitioners as well i honestly think that is a uh, you know a great practice um you know we've had listeners who uh have reached out and they're like oh i really need to um do this divination thing but i'm not really good at it and the number of times i've been like you don't have to, you don't have to you don't have to do divination. You can source that out, find someone who's really good at it. And I do agree that there really is this big push to like do everything and be good at everything. And for me personally, how I've seen that kind of play out is, um, especially, you know, divination's a good example because it's something kind of everyone touches on. But, uh, I've had people who are like, oh, like, you don't know how to read runes. I'm like, no, because I read this thing I've been reading for 15 years and I'm really good at it. <laughs> so I don't need to learn runes. There's other people who are really great at that and who uh, really honor it. Um, and then, you know, the system I read is a little it's not it's a, it's a little lesser known, but I've only met one other person who who reads what I read, uh, like proficiently, um, because people are so quick to like, just have a bunch of decks and hop around and, oh, well, I have this deck, I can read it. And it's like, well, ugh, pick one and get really good at it. Like right. in the wise words of Ron Swanson, don't hold, don't half-ass two things, whole ass one thing and get really good at it. Right. <laughs> I agree with that completely. And, um, you know, Ozark folk practices, there are so many different practices and variations out there because these traditions were based in families. And, you know, families differ from other families. And so there are so many practices out there that I, now that, you know, I've, I've been teaching classes for a few years now and have the books out, um, I'm seeing more and more people that are trying to do everything. And so I really make a point in all of my classes to say, you know, try things out. You know, there are, you know, <laughs> off the top of my head, I could give you a hundred different divination systems in the, the Ozarks, traditional and more modern. Um, you know, try some of them out and see how they feel. But yeah, find the thing that you are good at and then go for it, you know. And I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, everybody has the gift. It's just it manifests for different people in different ways. And so, you know, just like you have somebody who's a good painter versus a good sculptor, um, you have the same thing in, in the magical and healing world, too. And so part of, you know, getting in touch with your own gift and your own, you know, capacities is trying things out and then figuring out what you're good at. And a lot of times what you're good at is the thing that you enjoy. That's what I always tell people. Like if you don't, if you're practicing a divination system that you don't enjoy, um, maybe look into doing something else because this is, you know, if you enjoy what you're doing, you're more likely to be focused on it. You're more likely to, you know, engage with the process in a much deeper way than if you're just doing something because you're obligated to do it. And so, yeah, I always tell people these days, you know, don't expect yourself to do everything. F you know, try a bunch of things out and, and find out what resonates with you, what feels good, and then focus in on using that. Um, because, yeah, if you try to if you try to pick and choose a bunch of different things, you're just going to get lost in the woods. It's really easy to do.
So something you've touched on twice now that like I have to ask you about, and it might be a little silly, um, but in so in your book you talk about the wart charmers, and you had a line in there, and it said, "I it said I could write a whole book about this." And when I hear that, I'm like, oh, are there juicy stories? <laughs> are there good wart charmer hot goss out there? Well, I mean, so warts used to be, uh, you know, a big thing, especially here where a lot of people had involvement with farms and animals and were, you know, maybe didn't have very good sanitary practices, things like that. And so, you know, you see fewer and fewer warts these days because of just the way, you know, our lives are. But you know, that's one of the things that folklorists have collected over, you know, the past hundred years or so are, are these home remedies. And there are a lot of wart remedies out there. And so, like I was saying, you know, there are a hundred different divination systems that I could name off the top of my head. Likewise, with wart charms, every family had a different way of doing things. Um, it's really interesting. There are different types of gifted people um, specifically within the, if we look at like wart charmers as an umbrella term, and then underneath that there are specializations. So there were people who could, um, you know, use a verbal charm and blow a wart off of a person. There were people like, I had a great uncle who was a wart buyer. So specifically he could buy warts off of people, usually like with a penny or a dime. Um, there are people who can, you know, remove warts in to pieces of bread or potatoes and then destroy those items and then destroy the warts. So there are all of these different types of wart charmers and I guess wart specialists in the Ozarks. Um, so yeah, I, I say that I can write a book about wart charms and I, I mean, I really believe that I could. Um, I, me alone, you know, just as an individual, I've collected um, I think at last count was almost 260 different wart charms from the Ozarks alone. Um, so yeah, there, there are a lot out there. That is just so fascinating. I think, cause that's just something I never think about. So to hear that it was really so extensive, is just really, really neat. Um, but speaking about uh, these, these home remedies is there anything that you just absolutely swear by that you're willing to share that you think whoa if like the rest of the world knew about this they'd be blown away um yeah so as far as home remedies go i mean there's there there are a lot that i think work um but just looking at Ozark folk magic and healing in general, I think one of the things that I really want to get across to new practitioners, old practitioners, whoever they are, and public in general, is this idea of simplicity, which I think really comes out in Ozark folk practice. This idea of, you know, sort of letting go of external rituals, external, the need for objects and tools and things like that. I think today that's one of the big 
what I see as a problem in the folk magic and witchcraft community is this sort of spiritual capitalism that's going on. Um, this idea that, you know, if only I had the right tools, I could do this. If only I had the right space, I could do this. If only I had this. I, and we fall down into a rabbit hole of just consuming things. Um, so in the Ozarks, everything has you know traditionally been based in this idea of simplicity this idea that whatever you have on hand can be used for a magical purpose um, with the right intention so connecting to that that gift that's within all of us connecting to this innate flow of magic through the world around us and if we're able to connect to those things if we're able to sort of pull away from the external and look internal connect to that gift we don't really need things or whatever we have on hand we can use for any of our healing and magical practices um it's a it's about focusing that intention and so i think that's one of the things that i would i would like to get across to people the most is this idea that um you really can rely on yourself you really can rely on your innate gift and your connection to your ancestors to your teachers living and deceased you know whoever it may be you can you can really rely on those things in your practice um, one of my favorite quotes, and I always bring it out <laughs> talking to people, one of my teachers, uh, with regards to this, talking about, you know, objects and tools and processes and things like that, she stopped me as we were talking and she said, you know, as a healer, you should be able to do everything you need to do in a completely empty jail cell. And it's really this, this deep idea that is so prevalent in the Ozarks that um, no matter where you are, no matter who you're with, if you if you focus on that gift inside of yourself, you can work. You can do what you need to do. Um, everything else is really just, you know, to use the old phrase, icing on the cake. Uh, or as one of my teachers, you know, the image that they used was, you know, this magic is like this river. And the easiest way to get down the river is to just lay back in the current and let it take you where it needs, needs you to go. Um, that is focusing on the gift, focusing on the that sort of in, inborn gift within us. But if we want to get where we need to go faster, or maybe if we want to work against the current, we can build a boat. Uh, we can we can use the tools and the rituals and the ingredients and the items that are around us. We can use those things and we can build a boat to go where we need to go. But the easiest way to work is just going with the flow of nature, just working with that inborn power. And that's a hard thing to do because, you know, we are such a physical culture today. Uh, we are such a culture that relies on specific things for specific purposes. And I think one of the lessons that the Ozarks has to offer is this sort of letting go, relinquishing some control and just using your creative mind to come up with these sort of uh, dynamic, creative, simple solutions uh, for problems that we might face. Yes, I, I agree completely, um, completely with that, that, you know, that a lot of, we need to try our, you know, as witches, try our best to develop skills that aren't dependent um, on tools, because uh, exactly like you said, you know, you're stuck on an island. It's just you. Uh, you know, what what can you do? And I think um, that is a really 
wonderful practice or a, I, I think it's a really nice um, exercise for maybe witches who are looking to uh, grow and expand maybe beyond kind of the, you know, 101 um, um, ideas. Right. I, one of that, since you said exercise, one of the things that I sometimes do with my my students that are kind of connecting to Ozark practices, uh, um, I'll I'll tell them, you know, come up with a ritual that you want to do, you know, love, luck, prosperity, healing, whatever it is, come up with the ritual um, and then just buy purchase nothing, just go around your house, go around outside, wherever it might be. And just whatever you are drawn to, use that as a part of the ritual. And I think that's a really good exercise in sort of starting to focus on repurposing things in our lives for magical, you know, healing, spiritual practices. Um, because all of us, we have, in my opinion, such powerful things in our houses. I mean, there's, you know, for cleansing, there's nothing more powerful than a broom or water um, or water and uh, salt. Or, you know, in the Ozarks, you, there are cleansing rites that also use knives to cut, to sever, you know, evil and illness away from the body and things like that. And so I think that's one of the things that the Ozarks really has to offer is this connection to this simplicity. Going back to you know, that foundational why, like I was talking about earlier, why am I doing this? Why am I connecting to this practice? Why am I healing? Why am I working magic? And if we're able to go back to that foundational sort of why, then the external stuff, you know, doesn't always matter. So we actually have um, a few questions from our listeners one was uh, a question that was just directed towards the podcast, but I would just love your thoughts on it. Um, we had a listener ask about starting a witch's garden and she, um, you know, like starting from scratch. And when we answered it on the show, we kind of gave like, what's the easiest things to grow that just lean towards kind of your common witchcraft herbs. Uh, but for someone uh, like you, who, uh, you know, with the Ozarks and the healing, what would you recommend someone plant in their witch's garden that you think would just be really beneficial? So one of my favorite Ozark native plants, and this one will grow pretty much anywhere, depending on where this person lives. It it won't grow in, you know, probably won't grow in Alaska or someplace like that. But if they're in like Great Plains, South, Midwest, it'll definitely grow there. Um, so I'm a big fan of, so in the Ozarks, this plant is called horse mint. And it's a name that refers to a lot of different species of the Monarda genus. So M-O-N-A-R-D-A, -A, Monarda genus. And it's commonly known as bee balm. So some people already grow uh, crimson bee balm is really popular. It's a hummingbird flower. Um, it's in the mint family. So it grows and spreads really quick. Um, so plant it in an area where, you know, you can just kind of let it take over. Um, but there's a few different varieties that I really like. Um, there's one that grows here called wild bergamot, um, which is, I believe, Monarda fistulosa um, is a really nice one. There's also a lemon bee balm, uh, which is a beautiful flower. It actually has 
um, a tiered flower. So it's, you know, multi-levels of flowers growing up the stalk. Um, it is uh, Monarda citriodora, which is really nice. Um, but these plants all have um, a lot of different medicinal benefits as well as magical benefits. In the Ozarks, this is one of our water cleansing plants. Um, so it's hardly ever burned as a smoke, um, but it is used in baths and specifically to disconnect or detach uh, illnesses and spiritual influences from, from a person. So there's a folk belief in the Ozarks that if you go to a funeral or a cemetery, you know, sometimes you can come home with an unwanted spiritual guest. <laughs> they can follow you home. And so um, for some people, you know, there's this tradition of bathing in this, uh, the leaves and the flowers of these Monarda plants after visiting a cemetery to detach those spiritual influences. Um, but it's also great for just cleansing baths in general, um, cleansing off hexes and curses, things like that. So that's one that I really always recommend to people. It's a, it's a native plant. It's going to help your pollinators, especially hummingbirds. And, um, well, around here we have a moth that's like a hummingbird moth that also really enjoys the Monardas. Um, and so it's, it's going to help out a lot of the pollinators. And also it grows fast, spreads, and uh, is a really nice plant. It has a really nice flavor to it, too, kind of a bitter minty taste. So we have one more question from listener Jesse. Jesse is curious about uh, stories of the Fae in the Ozarks. Yeah, so there are a lot, <laughs> probably too many that then we could talk about today, unfortunately. But um, connections to the Fae are very deep in the Ozarks. It um, it actually goes back to both European and New World sources. Um, so while Ozark people were in Appalachia, the, their sort of fairy, northern European fairy beliefs um, that came over with the, the European settlers mixed with indigenous fairy beliefs. And so in the Ozarks, we have um, specifically what we call the little people. Um, which is an, uh, an amalgam of these European and indigenous fairy beliefs. Um, and still to this day, they are, you know, there are some people in the Ozarks that won't talk about them, refuse to even say their name um, because they don't want to, you know, have them show up on their doorstep, that sort of thing. There are farmers who still leave some of their crop for the little people in order to appease them so that their crop next year is, is better. Um, there are stories about house protectors, so the house brownies. Um, these are sort of fey creatures that um, have an origin in Europe, but also some indigenous traditions mixed in, but they protect the house as long as you give them offerings um, usually around the time of parties or big dinners because they never want to be left out of festivities. So usually the house brownies are given some food in order to, uh, you know, continue protecting the house, that sort of thing. So yeah, there are deep, deep fairy traditions in the Ozarks. There, are, I've even met healers and practitioners who have derived, at least in part, some of their gift or their, their ability, their power from interactions with fey beings. Um, and this is not, we're not just talking about modern folk. Um, I've met old timers who have these, um, fairy beliefs who made fairy deals and, um, 
for power and things like that. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's definitely a, a big subject. Um, you know, unfortunately, can't get into too much of it here, but um, I do occasionally teach about the little people and and fey beings. So those classes are sometimes pop up. Oh, awesome. Um, okay, so I mean, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to touch on before we leave? I think we're good. Yeah, we covered quite a bit, didn't we? Awesome. Yeah. Um, so where can our listeners find you if they are curious about um, your classes and your work? Sure. Um, I have a website, ozarkhealing.com, and uh, I post announcements about upcoming classes, that sort of thing. I also have done uh, virtual classes for the past few years, and recordings for all of my old classes are available for purchase on the website. Um, so there are, I think I even have a class on the website about Ozark monsters and fairies and things like that, um, if the person that asked that question is interested. But the website has a, a contact form in case anybody has any other questions or they want to get in touch with me about some of the services that I offer. Um, I also have social media, Instagram, at um, Ozark Healing Traditions. Uh, Facebook, Ozark Healing Traditions, and then Twitter is at Ozark Healing. Witches, we hope you have a wonderful day, full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day. <laughs>